0: Good morning. morning. I love your pastor, (laughs) our pastor. So I glanced at his Bible this morning when we were talking before the service. It's dog-eared. The pages are coming out of the binding. There's more underlining in it and words in the margin. It's coming apart at the seams. It's obvious to me that he lives in the Word. He learns from the Word and he loves the Word of God. I usually sit right over here, Bob, uh, on Sunday mornings and uh, love to sit at his feet as he teaches the Word of God. Um, If you look in my Bible, it's not nearly as old or as well-worn. I do underline, I write in the margins. Some time ago, my wife made a bookmark that I had it laminated, and I use it to underline. So I've marked the text where we're going to start. If you want to turn over there, it's Matthew chapter 8. That's where I would like to spend our time together. Uh, This bookmark my wife made and then laminated, it says, "I, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, Psalm 84.10 a good reminder for me every time I open the Word uh, privately or publicly. Karen is recovering from her stroke. Thank you for praying. Uh, She is still in a a rehabilitation hospital where I'll pluck her on Tuesday and hopefully be home in time for for Thanksgiving. So, Pastor, I noticed uh, a little stumbling there, and what do we call this guy? Uh, Let me just be right up front, and we're going to talk about this a little bit from the passage. Uh, Authority is established by God in this world. That's the order of things that he has. It's how he made the world. And um, if you think of Romans chapter 13... All authority is with the Father, but he gives it to whomever he will. For Romans 13, it's very clear. In First Timothy 2, Paul instructs young Timothy to pray for those in authority. He said, pray for kings and for all those in authority. So that covers the political spectrum, but it also covers the church and the family and your friends, and your work, it all means kind of all. Um, So we're to be submissive and to pray for those in authority. I would just tell you that um, my title, general, is just a title. It's, It's not really who I am. I am not a general. That's the title that's been given to me in connection with the levels of authority. And for good order and discipline in the military, it's necessary that people be elevated in those positions, but but I'm not a general. Who am I? Who are you? I am a sinner saved by grace. A child of the King. A servant of the Most High. All that I have and am is from Him, for Him, and because of Him. It's my heart's desire to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with my God. And at the end of my life, which is closer than for some, I long to hear my heavenly Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. That's who I am. The uh, weekend men's conference was a real blessing for me. Uh, To summarize for those who attended and to just familiarize those of you who didn't, uh, we started Friday night talking about leading when duty calls, and we looked at Abram in Genesis chapter 14. And then yesterday morning we started with leading in difficult times, and it was Caleb with Joshua and the ten other spies, Numbers 14 the end of the morning, we talked about 10 leadership maneuvers and the supremacy of serving in leading. I think if you get your serving right, the leading will take care of itself. Uh, the biblical basis for leading God's way and the hand of the Lord on a boy from a small town in Ohio. And then we concluded yesterday afternoon with the hard part of leading. Part, there, there are some parts of leading in some days where it's just hard. Uh, Getting five things right, serving, diligence, courage, humility, and a focus on others, not self. And then what the scripture says about conflict and confrontation. Today we're going to look at a military man in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 8. A couple memorial days ago, I sent an email out to a bunch of veterans that I know. Some of them live close to me in Ohio. Many of them have gone to the four winds. They were on active duty with me and believers, and I just wanted to check in with them. So uh, I just sent this email. Uh, Just checking in, Karen and I have just returned from a drive to California and back to see our son and his family. We head to New York starting tomorrow, hoping all is well with you. Blessings, Lauren. And here are a couple of the replies I got back from veterans. This one's from a general whose name is Dick. Hey, Lauren, I want you to know my Jody passed away a few days back from her unrelenting endo, endometrial cancer. Uh, ensuing pain was very difficult, and the cancer finally caught up with her. She'll be interred in Arlington in the fall. This is very tough, obviously, but I am relieved she's free of pain and on high with our Lord. Blessings to Karen, my dear friend. Then I got a note back from Master Sergeant Retired Joe DeLoyers. <clears throat> I remembered when I visited Joe, he was uh, at Walter Reed Medical Center in D.C. He was Aravac back from uh, Afghanistan where he had uh, an improvised explosive device blow up on him. And it took off his left arm and his left leg and his right leg. Triple amputee. And he was well under the influence of morphine. I got to the hospital soon after he arrived and came to his bedside. And uh, I just wanted to let him know that we cared about him and for him and pray with him. Five minutes, in and out. He wouldn't hear of it. said, pull up a chair, General. And that was the first time that he could tell the whole experience of what happened. He just held it inside, trying to hang on for life. And now he's in the hospital in the States. And I was the first guy through the door. And he just wanted to tell me the whole story. Five minutes turned into 10, into 30. And I knew I needed to get out of there to let him recover. His wife was there. And she was at the foot of the bed. And... It's the first time she had heard the story, as he told me she could listen. A school teacher from Florida, she had flown in to be there with her husband, and the tears just streaming down her cheek. So after he told me the story, and finally he relented to let me leave, I went around to the foot of the bed to shake his wife's hand, and she wouldn't hear of it. She put both arms out like this and hugged and just wouldn't let go. And so finally I went around and just uh, was going to shake Joe's hand or pat him on their head or I'm not sure what. And he goes like this. Where's my hug? (sighs) Joe replied to me, We're doing well, General. Kids are out of school and getting ready for the summer. That's quite a drive, but I prefer that overflying. Hope you have a great weekend, and let's remember our fall on this weekend as we do every day. God bless and say hi to Karen. So the Lord has given me opportunity to be in people's lives, uh, for which I am grateful. (coughs) Uh, Those are a couple veterans. Today we're going to look at a veteran of yesterday, if you will. Actually, 1,990 years ago, and his story is preserved for us to look at. And I think we can take some things away from it. And I would title this message, The Faithful Centurion. He was full of faith. And this is noteworthy. Our text is Matthew 8, 5 to 13. I'll read it in just a moment. The main idea is that a Jesus-pleasing faith includes accepting his authority. Don't tell me you have faith if you're not willing to accept his authority. That's what we're going to see in the text. Jesus based his comment on the centurion's faith based on what the centurion said and showed about his understanding that all authority was with Jesus. A Jesus-pleasing faith includes accepting his authority and with his authority, his sovereignty, his timing, his outcomes... In his decisions. The outline I'll take, if you're a note taker, uh, is as follows. In verses 5 and 6, we see the servant suffers. In 7 to 9, the soldier submits. And in 10 to 13, the Savior speaks. That's the outline would follow. So, would you stand please, if you're able, in honor of the reading of the word. And I will start with Matthew (coughs) chapter 5. Uh, at chapter 8 and uh, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only. And my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Father, I just pause to ask your blessing on our thinking through and looking at your word and what you have preserved for us to read and believing that it is profitable for us. I pray your blessing on our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. (coughs) So let's start with the servant suffers, verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, we see that this is a centurion. So he is a Roman soldier. He's a foreigner. He's a heathen. Because he's a centurion, the cent part of his title means 100. Now, some historians say it, it was at least 100. It could have been as much as 200 men that he had the authority over. So he was somebody. Somebody. He probably had the big house in town, the one with the circular driveway up on the hill. Uh, He was somebody. Uh, He was master of 100 plus soldiers. But as you see in the text, even though he was a soldier, he was a godly man. Now, I would just tell you the stereotype of today's military soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen is that they are sinful reprobates. And I would tell you, there are as many sinful reprobates in the military as there are in the society from whence they came. And there are also godly men at all levels who fear the Lord and live openly for the Lord and according to His Word. And I was, it was a great pleasure for me I was privileged to work with many of them. Uh, But I am quick to tell you that uh, I don't base success in life on rank. There were some tech sergeants, NCOs, who lived lives more pleasing to God than those with more lofty titles. And I assure you, when I stand before the throne of grace at the end of my life, God is not going to call heaven to attention. It's it's what did you do with my son Jesus? And so uh, this centurion apparently was a godly man. Neither nationality nor station was important to Jesus as his faith. I think that's the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, yesterday today and forever. It's It's not who you are, what titles you have, what possessions you have, where you live, although some of the best people in America live in upstate New York. Uh, That's not what the Lord is looking for. He looked for and commented on this man's faith. I notice in verse 5 that the centurion came himself. Though he had a hundred men or more under him, he didn't send one of them to Jesus. He came himself. And he apparently knew that Jesus was in town. Now this passage happened soon after the Sermon on the Mount. And so it was at the front end of Jesus' ministry. Now we have the benefit of all of Scripture, and we know how the story ends. He didn't. Okay? Jesus does not have much of a reputation at this time. And yet this man believed so quickly. He apparently knew Jesus was in town. He may not have known about the leper's healing that occurs in verses 1 to 4 because Jesus said, see that you tell no man, and he sent him to the priest. And so I don't know that the centurion knew what had just happened. And then I see the centurion beseeching Jesus, beseeching. He asked urgently, fervently, he implored. He entreated, had a great sense of urgency, of seriousness on behalf of someone else. When you approach the throne of grace, do you beseech God for others in in the way that the centurion approached Jesus? We see in verse 6 that the centurion was caring for the servant at home And that is not usually what wealthy Romans did uh, to care for their students or their their servants. In verse 6, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. He was caring for this servant, and that's not what people did. We begin to get a glimpse of this man's character and of his caring, though he had large responsibilities. He still cared for people in his house and even his servants. We see that the servant was immobile. The servant wasn't able to come. He didn't come with the centurion. He was immobile. He lieth at home sick. Ellicott writes of this passage, He is described as paralyzed, but the words grievously tormented point to more acute suffering than in common in that form of palsy and imply either something like rheumatic fever or tetanus, or the special kind of paralysis which benumbs the muscles only and affects the nerves of sensation with sharp pain, End quote. That the servant's suffering touched the master's heart, to me, also speaks of his character. Does the suffering of those around you touch your heart, or is it just a factoid? Something you rush to social media so you can show how much you know. Or do you really care? It's also noteworthy that the centurion didn't bring the servant with him for the touch. Noteworthy. So how often and how well do we bring to Jesus the needs of others? Can't help but think of Philippians 2.4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's what the centurion is doing. He is looking on the needs of others, and he is ministering. And I mean that in every sense of the word. He is ministering to the need of his servant. And so we come to verse 7. The servant suffers, and now the soldier submits. In verse 7, Whether Jesus was responding to the centurion or to the servant's need, I can't tell. But I can tell that Jesus responded. He heard the need and he responded. And Jesus said, I will come, I will heal. That's what Jesus said almost 2,000 years ago. I will come, I will heal. Dear friends, he still does. He still comes. He still heals. And there are some of you in this room, there's some of us in this room that need Jesus to come and to heal. There are things no one else knows about. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you need the healing of the Savior. I remember when I was stationed at the Pentagon. I made my way out to Andrews Air Force Base uh, because a C-17 had just landed, had come back from the, uh, the battle zone. And it was configured with litters. So it had three high the litters with uh, wounded soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines on them. And they were stacked three high all the way back through the cargo compartment. And I watched a senior officer In BDUs, no dress uniform, no flashy medals, decorations. I watched him climb up the first litter and the second litter and the third litter and stand on one side of this wounded soldier as his wife did the same thing on the other side of the litter. And so they are just right there face to face, 15 or more feet off the ground. And he pinned the Purple Heart on that soldier. They are right in front of his wife. I saw that day a senior officer that cared and wanted to minister not only to the soldier, so he quickly had his Purple Heart, but also to do it with his wife right there. When I was at Tinker Air Force Base, uh, I saw a colonel reenlist a senior airman who was right at the end of her term her four-year enlistment, and she was re-enlisting for four more years. Uh, This was back a few years, and we didn't have FaceTime and Zoom and Teams and all of that. But the colonel asked if uh, the senior airman's family was going to join, because if they were, he wanted to introduce them and show them the, the proper courtesies. And she said no. So this is in Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma. She said, my mother lives in Phoenix. And uh, she's dying of cancer, stage four. And she's just not able to travel. Colonel said, do you have her phone number? Yeah. So I put her on speakerphone. Set the speakerphone over right where the ceremony was, in front of the American flag. And conducted the ceremony, sometimes talking to the group assembled, sometimes talking to mom in Arizona. Uh, that's how you care for people. Uh, Jesus will come. Jesus will heal. Uh, Mark 10.35 For the Son of Man is not come to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. He came to serve not to be served. Uh, Luke 19.10 The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Joel 2.25, he restores the years the locusts have eaten. His grace abounds. I love a song that uh, Keith and Kristen Getty wrote. It's in, the title is His Mercy is More. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So Jesus said to the Centurion, "I will come and I will heal. That's who our Savior is. We see in verse eight, it's the second time that the Centurion spoke, and the second time that he said, "Lord, uh, when things happen two or three times in Scripture, pay a special attention. Uh, there's something going on there for him to call Lord the second time he spoke. And he said, "I am not worthy." I see in this centurion a man of high station, but low estate. How is it with you? Is it all about your title and what others think of you? Or is it your humility? I am not worthy. He humbled himself. And I think of James 4.10. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I mentioned this in the conference this weekend with the men. We are to humble ourselves, not wait for someone else or circumstances to humble us. Humble yourself and do it in the sight of the Lord, not in sight of man. It, it really doesn't matter if you think I'm humble. That's not the objective. It should be in the sight of the Lord. And if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. Matthew Henry writes, Humble souls are made more humble with Christ's gracious dealings with them. That's what's pleasing to the Lord. The centurion said, speak, only, speak the word only. A single word. Just speak one word. This is the Savior who created the heavens and earth. He spoke light into existence. There have been textbooks written on what light is. How does anyone speak it into existence? This centurion got it. He understood. He understood and bought into the authority that Jesus Christ, the God man, had. Single word no touch required. Thinking back to the leprous man that was healed with the touch. Jesus has such authority, you don't even need the touch. Just speak the single word. He said, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Do you see the confidence? My servant shall be healed. His confidence, his certainty, no maybe. And it says he would be healed, not improved, not relieved from the pain, but healed. My wife had the stroke a few weeks ago, and she lost, she's left-handed, she lost everything on her left side, Uh, couldn't move and still has trouble moving her left leg, though she's making some progress, couldn't lift her left arm off her thigh, couldn't open her fist. You've seen people with strokes, left side drooped, and still talks kind of like this, and it's hard to understand her. And so she's making progress. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about progress. Could you say the word and so over a month or so he'll get over this? No. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Matthew Henry writes, The centurion ascribes to Jesus divine power, a full command over all the creatures and powers of nature, as a master has over his servant. That's what's going on in the conversation. And we might not see it at first reading. Jesus understood immediately what the man was saying. We talked over the weekend about Abram in Genesis fourteen nineteen, And Abram states to Melchizedek of the Most High God, he said, he is possessor of heaven and earth. That's where the centurion was. He knew that all power, all authority came from Jesus, the God-man he was talking to. In verse 9, we see some insight into the military way. Uh, A decision to obey an order, ironically, is not made when the order is given. The decision to obey is made when you take the oath of office. When you take the oath of office, you raise your right hand before you ever go on active duty. It's a condition of being accepted on active duty. And you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That you take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you're about to enter So help me God. That's when you make the decision to obey an order. There's a great sense of duty in a soldier. I see it in this centurion. I felt it in myself. The men I talked to this weekend, many of them veterans, you know what I'm talking about, the sense of duty you have. You sign up for that. You buy into that. You commit to do that. When you take the oath. I see in verse 9 also. The centurion talking about being under authority. He's talking about serving. And stewarding. And yielding. And deferring. Think of the parable of the talents. And the three stewards that were left behind. With one, two, and five talents. While the master was gone. And then came back. Think of Jesus telling the disciples who would be the greatest in the kingdom. It wasn't necessarily Peter, James, and John who went up the Mount of Transfiguration. The greatest in the kingdom will be the servant of all. In the Old Testament, Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, we see very clearly that promotion comes from God. At any level in the authority spectrum, promotion comes from God. It comes neither from the east or the west or the south, but it is God who puts up one and puts down another. We see in the New Testament, First Timothy 2, that we are to pray for all those in authority. In the New Testament, Romans 13, we are to be subject to the governing authorities they have been instituted by God, Romans thirteen one. And we see that Jesus has all authority. He said in Matthew 28.18, All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. All authority belongs to Jesus. When the centurion is speaking of authority, he says, I say, come, go, and do. And he comes, goes, and does. There's no cajoling, there's no delaying, there's no convincing, there's no quibbling. It's instant obedience. It's also interesting to notice that the come and the go are linked to the soldiers. Come to where it is safe. Go to where I need you to go. It covers the landscape. When he talks uh, uh, about, uh, Jesus talked about in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go, you into all the world and preach the gospel. The do this that the centurion mentions in verse 9 is not linked to the soldiers, but it's linked to a servant. Sometimes here, sometimes there, whatever needs to be done. So we see the servant suffering and the soldiers submitting and starting to... 10 to verse 13, we see the Savior speaking. In verse 10, the conversation between Jesus and the centurion, which is what's happened right now. And then Jesus turns to talk to those who are following. Uh, see, it says in verse 10, and when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed. So Jesus and the centurion are having this conversation, and now Jesus turns to those who were following. Remember Sermon on the Mount, healing the leprous man, now the engagement with the centurion. I don't know how many that was, but there was a group that was following. The it that Jesus Jesus marveled about in verse 10 was the centurion's metaphor of a commander's authority over soldiers and servants being a picture of Jesus' authority over everything. Now, i can 't help but notice the differences from healing the leper in verses one to four and to what we have here. This supplication was from a Gentile that was from a Jew. this was on behalf of another his servant that was uh, which which is not himself the other was a person calling out for themselves, and this was a request to heal a patient who was out of sight beyond the touch range. So it's an entirely different situation. Jesus characterized this acknowledgment of his authority as faith, as great faith, as so great faith, as none being greater in all of Israel. It's interesting to me that he said this about a soldier. He said it about a foreigner. It wasn't about a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or someone that had lineage they could trace back to Abraham. He said this of someone else. Faith, great faith, so great faith. And then in verses 11 and 12, he's still talking with the group that are following. It's not an aside. It's not a new thought. It's not extraneous. It's related. It's a continuation of the not in Israel observation. Let me just read it again. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus states God's merciful purpose to all who by faith believe. And I don't know all of you. And I don't know where you stand or where you've told people you stand compared to where you actually stand with God. But but he's talking about his merciful purpose to all who by faith believe. The East and West comment, I think, refers to many Gentiles will come from the farthest parts of the world that's what he's saying and and they will sit down with abraham isaac and jacob the present privileges and the future rewards of the righteous is what that abraham isaac and jacob is about think of uh, luke 16:22 when jesus told the story about the rich man and lazarus and you remember when lazarus died where was he carried he was carried to Abraham's bosom. And pre-resurrection, that's the place where the believers assembled before they went home to heaven. Lazarus was carried into Abraham's bosom, Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. And God will accept their faith, the faith of Gentiles, as readily as the faith of Jews. He will accept the faith of centurions in Bible times. As he will the faith of those who live in upstate New York, of old people as well as young people, men, ladies, children. God will accept your faith as readily as anyone else. The children of the kingdom, I believe this is a reference to the unbelieving Jews, outer darkness a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not only the unbelieving Jews, but it's the destination of all unbelieving. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying this in the context of faith. Great faith. So great faith. Let's don't miss that. In verse 13, Jesus, having talked to those that were following, now turns back to the centurion. See, in verse 13, it says, and Jesus said unto the centurion. So now he turns back to the centurion. Uh, Don't miss the gravity of this. History's greatest man turned back to a centurion. I told this story over the weekend and I just want to share it because it really applies here. It was on the 24th of February, 2001 just a month and a week after President George W. Bush was inaugurated to be president. He was visiting Tinker Air Force Base, where I was stationed, and my wife and I got to be part of the receiving line of four couples so that when the president and Mrs. Bush came down the stairs, they would shake our hands, just a brief welcome, and then into the motorcade, and off they went to downtown Oklahoma City to make a speech. I thought for the two days' notice I had what am I going to say to the president? The president, the, the most powerful man in the free world. He was going to shake my hand and I was going to get to talk to him. Say something. No five minute conversation. No elevator speech. I mean, I had, I had one shot. Probably one sentence. What would I say to the president of the United States? He used to own the Texas Rangers baseball team. How about those Rangers? Uh, how do you like our weather? <coughs> Pointing to Air Force One, nice set of wheels. I wanted to say something more important than that. And as I reflected, I remembered how since I was a lieutenant, I prayed for my chain of command all the way up, my boss and his boss and his boss, all the way up to the President of the United States by name. I knew them all. And I'd pray for him while I was running, while I was driving, when I was walking from A to B, many, many times I prayed for my chain of Command, and so I just decided when the President came, I was just going to say, Mr. President, I pray for you. That's all I was going to say. So here he comes, first couple. We're the second couple. Laura is preceding him down the line. I thought that was interesting. Uh, the White House photographers are there, and of course the Secret Service is just about in reach of him. And he comes down, uh, he comes to me, shakes my hand, and And I tell him, Mr. President, I pray for you. He's just about ready to leave. He's halfway over to talk to my wife when he turns and comes back to talk to me. For another time, I'll tell you what we talked about. It was longer than planned. When he moved in close, so did the Secret Service. (laughs) Wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen. What's going on here? Uh... But I'll never forget when the President of the United States turned and came back to me. And that's what we see in our text here. Jesus turns back to the centurion to tell him something. Man, I'm all ears. What? What? After all of this, what is he going to say to this centurion? And I will tell you the gap between Jesus and the centurion was far greater than the gap between the President and me. It's interesting, Jesus sent him away. He said, go thy way. He didn't say, come after me or follow me. He said, go your way. As thou hast believed, not proportionally, but after the same manner, in the same instant as your son is healed. As you have believed, the fact of that There's also the fact that your son is being healed right now. It's interesting that the servant was healed because of the master's faith. There are people in your sphere of influence, young people, teenagers, young 20s, older men. There are people in your influence that you have contact with and influence over who may be saved because of your faith. Don't lose sight of that. So let me just wrap up with some observations and some application. Um, the greatest faith that Jesus had seen, though though his name isn't even recorded, the centurion, what was his name? Don't know what his name is. It's not recorded in Scripture. God apparently didn't think that we needed to know his name. How many anonymous people are there with great, so great faith that we don't even know their names? Are you willing to be one of those? Man's economy would put his name on social media. A worthy deity Jesus kept the attention on himself. A second observation, the centurion was on the lookout for Jesus. Uh, Back in verse 5, it says, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Centurion was on the lookout, and as soon as Jesus came into the region, boom, the centurion was there. He was on the lookout. Are, Are you on the lookout for Jesus? I mean, is that your first thought before your feet hit the floor in the morning? Third, the centurion's intercession was passionate and for another, not for himself. When you go to prayer, do you trot out your wish list? Or are you passionately beseeching the throne of grace on behalf of others? Like Abram of 2,000 plus years prior, The centurion attributed to Jesus' deity that he was the Most High God and that he had all authority. He wouldn't argue with the title Most High God that Abram used. And finally, for an observation, Jesus' plan for the centurion was different than for many others. He told him, go your way. He told others, come after me, follow me, leave your fishing nets, Walk away from the taxpayer's table, Matthew. He had a different plan for the centurion. And God may have a different plan for you and for your life. It's maybe not panning out the way you thought it is, and certainly not the way it is for others. How can this be? Well, it can be because God is an individual God. And he has a plan for your life that you need to follow. And what he told the centurion was different than what he was telling others. I'll conclude with some application. How would Jesus characterize your faith? Faith? Great faith? So great faith. Greatest faith, even more than in northern New York State. The centurion b- beseeched Jesus and yielded to his authority. And then Jesus' response was to commend his faith. Second, he did not mention the centurion's station or position, his stripes or his stars, his badge or his background. He commended his faith. This is important business, ladies, gents. It's important business that we get our faith right. Three. It's not our career, our family size or our income. It's not our car, the size of our house, or camp, or how much land we have. Our faith should rise above all of these. Number four, Pastor Stephen read it, Hebrews 11:6, "And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever comes to God must believe that He is." And that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I think this pertains to saving faith and to living faith. And l- last point is, in God's economy, faith matters more. Whatever you're thinking, faith matters more. Our main idea is that Jesus Jesus pleasing faith includes accepting His authority. And with his authority, his sovereignty, his timing, his outcomes, and his decisions. His authority to save us in saying we are all sinners, Romans 3.23. His authority in saying our repenting of our sins and believing in a risen Savior is sufficient to become a child of God, John 1.12, Romans 6.23, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. To save us from death to life, from lost to found, from perishing to prospering, from ours to His, His authority to keep us. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the life of this faithful centurion and the example, know the challenge that it is to me. I pray that we would live lives that please You That we would have faith, great faith, so great faith, that you would call it out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.